It's good to be here. Uh, thank you for uh, the opportunity to preach with you for this chunk of time. And um, we're in, for those of you who were away last week, I've begun a series in heaven. And we asked last week, where has heaven gone uh, in our society? And heaven will go to those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. We asked, what is heaven? But we're going further, deeper today. And we're going to ask, why is heaven such a comfort today? Today. Why is heaven such a comfort today? Human death, as we learned, is the result and reward, if you like, of sin, isn't it? The punishment of sin. But I want to reassure you today, I know many of you have lost loved ones this week. Think of dear uh, um, Reverend Leg. He is in the kingdom today. He is, he is there with the Lord. There's a reality, and we are going there. Future meetings, wonderful conversations. When we die as Christians, we will be with Christ. Remember? Philippians 1.23, which is far better. We will all be conscious, whether blessed or damned. Luke 16 and Revelation 6. Christian, will you always be in that intermediate state? With the place where heaven is now? No. In the present heaven, we'll be with Jesus, but we'll be looking forward, won't we? Looking forward to our bodily resurrection and the new earth, Revelation 21 and 2 Corinthians 5. So that's a little recap to you. The devout astronomer Copernicus, who was famous for his discovery that the sun, not the earth, was the centre of the universe, said on his deathbed, I don't ask for the grace you gave St. Paul, nor can I dare ask for the grace that you granted to St. Peter. But the mercy which you show to the dying robber, that mercy show to me. That mercy show to me. The dying thief. We're going to spend today following the dying thief. He's not dead now, is he? He's alive. Let's meet this man who has fascinated many throughout the centuries. People have even given them names, but I won't give them a name because the Bible doesn't give them a name. Turn with me to Luke 23, and we'll be looking at verses 42. You knew this in the reading. 42 and 43 today, okay? Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus said to him, and this is what we'll consider tonight, assuredly, or in the Greek, Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. With paradise. What a comfort heaven is, okay? What a comfort. Simply this morning, I want to introduce you to three men on the Judean hill. And then we will investigate the words or the request of the dying thief as he says to our Lord, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Looking in particular at kingdom. What does he mean? What's in his mind? What is the kingdom? So first of all, let me introduce you to the three men on a Judean hill. Try and imagine the darkness of that hill. It's a place, isn't it, in the reading? A famous place outside the city wall, the rubbish dump of the town. And I want you to imagine in your minds a hopeless place of execution. Uh, you know, this is the, the worst place. It's the place where the worst of are disposed of, out of the way, outside the city wall. The creaking crosses, there's gibbets, aren't they? And the eerie hush that ensues when men are doing what God only should be doing, taking the life. Humanity is sinking to its lowest. Human taking the breath of another human. Tom Holland, uh, the renowned historian, uh, he's written a book called Dominion, says this about crucifixion. Everything about the practice of nailing a man to a cross, a crux, was repellent. Why the very word is harsh on our ears, crux. It was this disgust, the crucifixion uniquely inspired, which explained why when slaves were condemned to death, they were executed in the meanest, wretchedest stretch of land beyond the city walls. The name of the place is Calvary, isn't it? From the Greek kranion, meaning skull, which the locals call Golgotha. A horrible place, and death is a horrible thing. It's not called the last enemy for nothing. The three of them had already been through so much, hadn't they? Three of them. They'd had to carry the patibulum, not the whole cross, but the crossbar, the patibulum, through the streets and to this place. And John, who was an eyewitness, describes how there were three crosses, weren't there? There they crucified him, our Lord, and with him on two sides, uh, Jesus, um, and with him, two uh, others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. This is history. The account describes these two figures as kagurgos. Um, that word is stronger than criminals. They're evildoers, sinners, terrorists. Think of ISIS or Boko Haram. These are people who've killed people. And that in itself is a fulfillment of prophecy, isn't it? Isaiah 53, which says that our lovely Lord would be crucified and numbered among the transgressors. The lawkeeper is being treated as the lawbreaker. Notice how Luke, Luke is writing this, by the way. It says on the top of your Bibles, Luke, he's a doctor. He has an identifiable style. I think I've said this before. He enjoys telling stories in twos. Have you noticed? Two women expecting a baby, Mary and Elizabeth. See, I nearly forgot then. Two old saints 
waiting for the Messiah in the temple, Simeon and Anna. Two sisters, Mary, Martha, two men going up to the temple to pray. And then we have two sinners here, either side of the cross. They'll die two deaths, won't they? And there'll be two conversations, two decisions, and two destinies. Two destinies. Yes, I'm saying it again. It is appointed man once to die, and then either heaven or hell. This scene, my friends, is history as we introduce these three. But it's also your story, isn't it? It's your story. A kind of dress rehearsal for every human who comes face to face with Jesus of Nazareth. Are you the man on the left? Or are you the man on the right? How will you react to what Alistair Begg in our wonderful clip calls the man on the middle cross? Accepting him or denying him will determine and seal your destiny this morning. This isn't a practice of oratory. This isn't me just sort of uh, showing off biblical knowledge of some sort this morning. No, this is life and death. Life and death. Let's look at man number one. Man number one. You can put him on either side. The guy was guilty, wasn't he? Look at verse 38. The man railed against Christ, shouting, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Bitter contempt. Selfish desires. We get an insight here into his heart, don't we? By the way that he's speaking to the Lord. He's lived a dark life. He's been to dark places. He's done dark things. There's no reverence. There's no repentance here. That posh word for change, turning to Jesus. There's no turn here, is there? If you look at him, even though he asked Jesus to deliver him there in those verses, he did not believe in his heart. Underneath his comments is an insult directed at the Messiah. If you are the Messiah... There's a tragedy this morning now reading. Why do you ask? Well, that man doesn't react well to the man in the middle. When you reject Jesus, you reject heaven. When you reject the king, you reject the kingdom. When you reject mercy, you are totally on your own when you come to be judged. Matthew tells us that the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. At first they were the same, yet something changed with one of them, didn't it? And we know the story, but I need to introduce them to you. Let's move on to the other side of the cross, shall we? Because there's a change here. Man number two. Was it Jesus' gentle manner? His prayers for his enemies? Back in verse 34. Or was it his love for his mother and care when he asked John to look after her? How, what, what happened? Something happened to that man, the other man. 
At last, he couldn't listen to the other man reviling. He had to say something. Look at verse 40 and 41. Follow me now. Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. What we're seeing in this verse, my friends, is what Calvin says, is a man who's coming to know himself, and then he's coming to know his God. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? He was guilty. He knew it. He knows that Jesus is innocent. Verse 41, he knows it. He knows there's a hereafter. A hereafter. Jesus Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, as you know, means Savior. Savior, remember me, Yeshua. And interestingly, this is the only place in the Gospel of Luke where somebody um, uh, calls Jesus by his given name. Isn't that special? Back in the Bethlehem story, you remember what the angel said to Joseph? You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. There is life in the name of Jesus, you see. The man's request is so simple, isn't it? And it gives us comfort. Comfort. Especially for those family members that we thought that were completely beyond hope. And yet what we see in this in this. Twilight passage is a man coming to Christ on his deathbed. He was never baptized. He never took communion. He never had the opportunity to do good works, did he? The man on the middle cross said, I could come, as Alistair Begg puts it. The man on the middle cross is the king, the king. The man on the middle cross says the same to you this morning. So we've met the three men. We are there in our mind on the Judean hill. Now let's look at what the thief is asking. Secondly, let's investigate the king and the kingdom. Now what did he mean by these words? His asking here seems to suggest, doesn't it, that he wishes Messiah to remember him when he comes again in the glory of his reign. Later, isn't it? There's that, we, do, we can't know for certain, all right? But there's that tone there, isn't there? Especially when you think of what Jesus replies to him. Today, not tomorrow. Today I'll remember you. Listen to Augustine here. Why do we not know the country whose citizens we are? Because we have wandered so far away that we have forgotten it. But the Lord Christ, the King of the land, came down to us and drove forgetfulness from our heart. God took to himself our flesh so that he might be our way back. The King himself has come, you see. And what is this kingdom? Well, in the Bible, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, you know, they're interchangeable terms, all right? Because Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven because the Jews wouldn't say the name of God. 
You see, they're interchangeable terms which stand for God's absolute rule and reign. But when does Christ's kingdom begin then? Well, specifically, as our Messiah, it is inaugurated following his resurrection. Do you remember Matthew 28, verse 18? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The King has come. The King has come. Have you, have you realized that? It is both a heavenly reign, since Christ is in heaven ruling by the Holy Spirit, but it is also an earthly reign. Like we said with the children this morning, the whole creation belongs to our King. St. Ambrose said, wherever Christ is, there is life. There is the kingdom, wherever Christ is, you see. That's why he said, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. We tend to over-spiritualize the kingdom uh, in our minds. Yes, it's spiritual. Yes, it's eternal. But it doesn't, it's not a ghostly thing either. Do you remember in John 18 when Pilate asked him about this? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, Jesus didn't mean here that his kingdom was on like cumulonimbus and cumulostrata, sort of this sort of um, concept, ethereal. He doesn't mean here that he wouldn't be on earth either after it is transformed. What he's saying to Pilate there is that my kingdom isn't of this earth as it is now, under the curse. Although Christ's kingdom isn't from the earth, it extends to the earth. And one day, it will fully include the earth and be centered on it. Let's have a little jump back to Eden quickly. I told you we'd be going back to the garden a lot. God's commandment to Adam, do you remember? It was to cover and dominate the earth with that garden as God's vice-regent. That was his commandment. Mustn't think of a sort of, we'll look at more of this tonight, but not the English country garden, all right? <laughs> Christ as the last Adam is the one who picks up where Adam failed, isn't it? With that kingdom work. Christ Jesus, as the last Adam, is the one who will bring heaven back. Christ Jesus will bring in that eternal Sabbath rest of his kingdom. You see, the kingdom is one of life, isn't it? Life. Look at the thief. The thief on the cross believed that this dying, suffering, naked man, by the way, Christian art has always made him more respectable, but it was a shameful ordeal. That this naked man on his left or his right was the king of this coming kingdom. I wonder, did he see that sign above the cross? Jesus Christ, king. Did he hear the taunts? What did he understand of this kingdom? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Perhaps he witnessed the supernatural darkness. What is clear is that God revealed to that man the reality of the man that was in the middle. 
He revealed to him that there was a tomorrow, even beyond his death. And he believed, didn't he? He believed, which is in itself a gift from God. My friends, believe this morning. Believe, repent, and believe. They're like Siamese twins, yes? Don't just do it. (laughs) Don't stress about the technicalities. We are to turn from our sin to Christ, believing in him, believing repentance, repenting faith. In Luke 10, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near you, is near you, it's near you. In fact, the moment this thief is born again, he becomes a citizen. He he gets that passport, if you like. Heaven begins for him on that hellish cross, on that hellish cross. But how? How? The words of the dying thief are the words of a repenting man. He literally turns to Jesus. But you might ask me, well, how, what about sanctification then? Or being made holy? How, how, did, how did that happen? Well, we often think of sanctification as a process, don't we? Throughout Christian life. But when you are born again, not only are you justified, this is a missing note in today's uh, Christianity, but you are sanctified as well. The posh word here is definitive sanctification. I'm not going to test the children on that. (laughs) Definitive sanctification. You remember in Romans 6, Paul imagines the reign or the thraldom of life and death. In verse 11, he says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. The moment you believe you are dead to sin, it's like taking this hymn book from one side of the church and putting it in the other side. You are dead to sin. You are sanctified. Listen to Lloyd-Jones. At the moment you are regenerated, or at the moment of your justification, Because it then becomes actual in our experience. The moment we become Christians, we are dead. Completely dead to the reign of sin. And how dare you then to think that we can still play with sin. Such were some of you. We are now out of sin's territory altogether if we are believers this morning. This is kingdom language here isn't it? So fact, when we are known by Jesus, we pass over from the control of death into the power of life. We are citizens of the kingdom. Whoever lives by believing in me, John 11, will never die. At the Ballas Ministers Conference, um, Tristan Hallam gave a paper on John Newton's Amazing Grace. You all know Amazing Grace. I hope you do. If you don't, learn it. And how grace for him wasn't an abstract construct, but a reality. And there was this really moving part of his history talk. And history talks, they've got to be, if they move you, then you know this, this is a good talk, because history doesn't often move, does it? Different with this talk. It talks about John Newton's mother. 
And John Newton's mother, John Newton, not Newton, John Newton's mother died when he was young. And John Newton, as you know, became a vile offender, like the thief on the cross. He became involved in the slave trade. He treated people uh, from Africa terribly. His hands were filthy. And yet, when he was in despair, and I think it was a storm on the sea, if I remember rightly, God brought to his remembrance what he needed the most. And you know what that was? The hymns and verses that his mother sang to him as a toddler. He couldn't remember her face, but he could remember what she sang to him. Now, you might think, how on, what, is, what on earth is Nathan getting at here? Well, my friends, are there mothers here this morning? I know there are. Sing to your babies about the kingdom. Teach them to call on the king. Yes, that's all true. Our children can go very far away from God, but God is the God of the vilest offender, isn't he? He's the God who delights to bring the prodigal home. And what relevance does this have here? May I speculate? How did this man know about the kingdom? Can I speculate? I think we can. Is it possible that he remembered the Psalms? He was a Jew, wasn't he? The great Psalms which spoke of a kingdom and a king. We've forgotten these Psalms today, but our forefathers knew them off by heart. Why don't you just turn with me to Psalm 16? Perhaps he remembered Psalm 16 and how the psalmist clings to God when his life is threatened. Preserve me, O God. That beautiful uh, Hebrew shamar. Um, preserve me, O God. It starts. This is a poem, remember, which begins the poem with that preserving word. The preserving God in that psalm is the God who does not abandon that's important, underline that. This is a God who does not abandon you. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The real subject of the psalm, as you know by now, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the dying thief, I wonder, did he realize? He does, doesn't he? He says next to him, this man has done nothing wrong. Is it the Holy One? Is it the Messiah that I remember from Psalm 16? Your Holy One, who God will not allow to see corruption? Oh. But look at the verse that comes after you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This isn't just the experience of Messiah. This can be your experience. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He will show me the path of life in God's presence, especially in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the fullness of joy, isn't it? This is, I wonder, did he know this? Did it come to his remembrance? I'm not saying definite, 
but it's it fits, doesn't it? You will not allow your Holy One, Messiah, to see corruption. You will show me the path to life. Psalm 72 then. Perhaps you remembered Psalm 72. You can turn with me if you like. Perhaps you remember that psalm where the Messiah's universal reign is sung about. The great climax of the royal psalms. It speaks of a kingdom where its ruler is unique and perfect. Jesus, as the anointed one of God, is the instrument of its coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark 15 and John 18, Jesus claimed to be king, didn't he? In John 19, it is written above the cross. And then right at the end of your Bibles, in Revelation 19, John sees that name written once more, not on the cross, but on the Messiah himself. This is a kingdom which in itself is the home of righteousness. Why? Because our king is righteous. He is holy. He has done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. We then, when we come into that kingdom, will at last forever do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, as Micah says. Was he familiar with the Psalms? Perhaps. But let's conclude. Which man are you? I have to ask that this morning. Or oh, women, this is not just for men. Children too, I hope you're listening. What man are you? What do I, know? What I do know? He may not have been familiar with the Psalms, but I do know about one of those men that Jesus' words were a comfort to him. A comfort to him. You can almost imagine the great sigh of relief. You're going to be remembered not in the future, brother. You're going to be remembered today, now. In fact, you're coming with me today. Just like Psalm 17, you will show me the path of life. Oh, it's better, isn't it? You will take me there yourself. Oh, what I do know is how wonderful it would have been for the dying thief to go from that horrible hill, that disgusting hill, where mankind sank to its lowest, and in a flicker of a moment, he had come to Mount Zion. No more pain. No more death. Being fed up of death. No more cancer. No more anger. No more losing your temper. No more talking about yourselves like unbelievers. No more respectable sins. Running one another down. No more, no more. Don't be troubled of not having a body either, friends. I know last Sunday I said that God is spirit, yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that heaven is spirit. We know that heaven, after all, is a created realm. And we know that there is, this is important, one physical body there, isn't there? A man there is, a real man, not a ghost. Jesus Christ, what a comfort, what a comfort. Why is that a comfort? Because it promises the glorified spirits in heaven 
that there's a future heaven coming, isn't there? There's a future heaven and a new earth. Doesn't mean that they're unhappy. Doesn't mean that they're somehow um, oh, in misery. No, 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 no. That new earth will have the same glory, but it will also contain our new bodies. The intermediate state is such a comfort for the Christian. In Revelation 6, we recall the martyrs under the altar calling, how long? Of course, they're looking forward, aren't they, to the final state. But you mustn't think that they're in pain. They are fully secure and they are totally victorious and they're not on their own. Hebrews 12 but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You're not going to be alone. The dying thief is not alone. That's a comfort, isn't it? I was talking to a gentleman in London. I'm coming to the end now. Uh, we were staying with him. Lovely, lovely couple. And we talked about the dying thief. And the dying thief really annoyed him. Really annoyed him. I've never heard this before. I, I thought, oh, it's such a good story. Wonderful. But he said, I said to him, why? Why is this dying thief annoyed you? Because, he said, he lives a life of sin, a life of unrighteousness, and right at the end, he makes it. And he looked at me, and he wasn't smiling. <laughs> he was angry. And I answered him and said, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? That's grace for you. That's grace for you. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Like me. And I could say, you could tell him, the vilest offender, that's me, isn't it? I'm sure you can all say that this morning. I met another man a week later who was converted singing that hymn. That vilest offender whom truly believes that moment a pardon from Jesus receives. Jesus doesn't deal in tomorrow. He deals with today. He says to the dying thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, you are forgiven. Today, you can be saved, you see. That's grace for you. That's grace. But who are you? Because there's two sides to this story, isn't there? One man who went to the kingdom, one man who didn't. And time is running out. Time is running out. So if you are the vilest offender here this morning, or perhaps you think that you've never done anything wrong, then pray that, I pray that God would show you yourself and then that he would show himself to you. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment. That's a comfort, isn't it? You're safe, brothers and sisters. Christians, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And we'll continue tonight with Jesus' answer. For his name's sake, amen. We'll sing that hymn, To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his Son. 
who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gate so all could go, that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Can you praise him this morning? Praise the Lord. Let Richard Road hear your voice. Let's sing together 
After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Amen, amen. Lord, now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit continue with us this day, your day, as we fellowship together and as we return here this evening to hear those wonderful, wonderful words today, you will be with me in paradise. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen. Amen.